0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, our text this morning, verses 29 and 30 of God's holy word. We come here to these verses that are known as the golden chain of salvation or as the commentator William Hendrickson calls it, the unbreakable chain. We have these wonderful graces that are described for us here in this passage of what God had done in eternity past, what God does in time for his people as he calls them, as he justifies them, as he promises to glorify them. We see our Lord's sovereign love put on display in passages like this. And how wonderful it is and how much of a comfort that it gives the people of God to see how we are secured in the hand of our God. That none will be lost. And that you'll notice as we work our way through these uh, in verse 30 of being called and justified and glorified. These are in the past tense as if Paul is saying it's a done deal. You are secured and this is your promise. We have this comfort given to us, that God is working in us in the present time through our circumstances, and this is given for us here. Paul says in verse 28 that we went over last Lord's Day, that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And we ask the question, how do we know that? How can we trust that? he's already spoken of our future glorification already within Romans 8. He talked about how creation is longing for that day, how we're, we are groaning in ourselves longing for that day. He gave us such assurance of knowing the intercessory work of the Spirit of God who is bringing us along in our Christian life, moving us toward that day. He intercedes for us with groanings according to the will of God. He intercedes He intervenes in our life. He brings us along and he prays for us when we don't even know what to pray. This is some great graces that God has given to his people. These wonderful promises that in our weakness, the spirit prays on our behalf and he does so according to the will of God. He helps us in our weakness. And because of his great love for the saints and praying for us, Paul says that we know with certainty that all things, whether times of prosperity or times of adversity, all things are working for our good, for our benefit, that it would be profitable for us, virtuous. He works all things for good as he carries us along, and he produces righteousness in our lives. These are things that we've been over. These are things that we've been looking at for the past number of weeks of Of what God is doing for his people. Stuff to bring us comfort and encouragement. These wonderful truths. And now the apostle is going to go even further. To demonstrate uh, the truth of God working things out for good. He's going to take us back to eternity past. To express God's love and his delight for you. His great love for you. He's going to remind us of God's goodness towards us and molding us to be more like the Son of God, the head of our spiritual family. He's going to remind us of His love, His goodness, and His faithfulness, and that what He has promised He will surely bring to pass. And this is to encourage us, dear church. He will bring it to pass. As He says in Philippians 1, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I know these are some of our favorite passages, but these things are written for you to be comforted by, for you to rejoice in. They are not written just to give us fuel for a debate. They are written for us that our hearts might move to say to our Lord, Thank you and praise be to your name. That's the intention here. So I pray as we work our way through this passage that our hearts and our minds will be open to hear what the word of God is saying. For some of us, it's very familiar. Some of us, it it may be something that we're not so familiar with and it may conflict with some of the things perhaps that we had an understanding of before. But again, let us be in prayer that God will will let his word do its work in our hearts, give us a greater understanding of what it is that he has accomplished for his people, and let our hearts rejoice before our God this day. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture Verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we come before you this morning humbly. We come before you, Father, seeking your guidance, seeking to understand this passage as best as we can, that it would be a great delight for us, not something that we shrink back from, but that we see your love put on display in this, your majesty put on display in this. I pray, Father, that, that this passage here would, would bring such joy and comfort to us as we gaze upon Christ and see what all that he has accomplished for us and what you have accomplished and what you are accomplishing through the Holy Spirit whom you've granted to us. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, may it accomplish all you desire. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. So last Lord's Day, we had went over chapter 8, verse 28, of all things working together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. And now we have the apostle who is elaborating on that good. What is that good that he is speaking of? How can we know that God is working all things for good? And so to ensure his readers that God is working all things for good, whether in times of prosperity or adversity, he's going to show us of God's great love that he had for us in the very beginning, that he continues to have for his people even today, and it is found here in these verses. Now, for many people who are not within the Reformed tradition, they see these verses, or at least the Reformed understanding of these verses, you know, casting some kind of a shadow on the, the image of God, on the goodness of God. as a, the Passages like this somehow making God some, some kind of a moral monster or something. And these passages uh, do quite the opposite because it gives us an understanding of God's sovereignty, of God's love, of God's grace. And what is grace? That's the thing that we have to always come back to. What does it mean to be saved by grace? And these passages here help us to understand that. It shows God's justice in the fact that if He chooses some unto salvation, He is indeed going to bring judgment on the others. There are many things to see within this passage. And so again, let our minds and our hearts be open to hear it. He starts out by saying, <clears throat> "For those whom he foreknew." Now, we're looking here at God's great love for his people, for those whom he foreknew. To foreknow does not mean foresight. That's not what the word means. He uses two Greek words here for foreknow and predestined, and they both are are giving us that, that sovereign look, or that look at God's sovereignty and his great love. helping us to understand that his love for you is going back all the way to eternity past. One theologian says this, God has ordered the circumstances surrounding the lives of his people to accomplish his purpose for them. Paul communicates this by using two expressions, to know beforehand and decided beforehand. Together, these terms refer to God's loving, purposeful choice of his people with New beforehand, connotating the loving relationship God has with his people, and the word for deciding beforehand, emphasizing the resolve with which he chose them for a particular purpose. Here, in a way, this is consistent with his focus on God's purpose. Paul takes God's loving, intentional choice of his people back in time to a period before his people existed. Now, this word for know. We need to, to look at it for just a moment. We need to take some time here. One theologian would, would say that this word for know means divine active delight. In his own sovereign and good pleasure, God sent his love on, he set his love on certain individuals, many still to be born, gladly acknowledging them as his own, electing them to everlasting life and glory. The word foreknow. It comes from the Greek word ginosko. Ginosko is used in a number of different instances, but it gives an understanding there of, of that intimate kind of a knowledge, that intimacy of love. You know, the scripture tells us that Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. And he uses that word ginosko, conveying that, that intimacy that, that Joseph would have with Mary after Christ was born. You have this kind of a knowledge that is... Also conveyed in other passages of a deeper knowledge than just simply having uh, an abstract understanding of of something or a general knowledge of something. Let me give you an instance here that it's used in a different way. In Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, this is very familiar to us. Not everyone who says to me, verse 21, Now, is this to say that somebody comes up before the Lord in judgment and he looks at Him and says, I don't recognize who you are. Have we met? I'm not familiar with you. No, because God is all-knowing. He knows all things. He knows the unbelievers. He he knows the, the intricacies of every ounce of their being, every part of their being. He knows them. So what does this mean? When Jesus says, I never knew you, This is meaning I never knew you in this intimate love. I never knew you. Which also gives us an understanding, too, about God's love and to whom God's love is given. If God's love is just something general and given to everyone of the same degree and in the same way, then this would not make any sense. For Jesus to say, I never knew you with this intimate love. But it does make sense when we come to understand that God's love for his people is something far far different than what God's common grace or his general love you could say for even the unregenerate. In John chapter 10 <clears throat> John chapter 10 we'll look at we'll start in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I know my sheep is what he says. He knows his sheep with that intimate love, that intimate knowledge, that loving, intimate knowledge. And so, this particular word that is used back in Romans chapter 8 puts a prefix on the front of it prognosco, which is beforehand, to know beforehand, to know with that intimate love beforehand. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean foresight. It's not as if, here's some of the things that we have to do. Whatever position that we hold, we need to see what the outcome of it is. If I follow this line of thinking, where do I end up? If we interpret this to mean foresight, that God looked into the future, seen who was going to believe, and on the basis of them believing and, and praying to receive him, on that basis of that knowledge, he elects them to faith because you can't get around election. Election's in the scripture, it uses the word elect everywhere. So if we say that God looked into the future, saw who was going to be praying and receiving him and on that basis he elects them to faith, then one, we have conditional salvation, and two, it's implying that God had to learn something. And God doesn't learn anything. Because God knows all things. This word means those whom he loved intimately beforehand. And that word is used in that context of that intimate kind of love. <clears throat> so with that kind of an understanding, that's why William Hendrickson specifically, uh, when he looks at the word foreknow or foreknowledge, he's under he comes to understand what it means with this with this phrase of divine active delight. Those whom he loved intimately beforehand, he also predestined. He chose them beforehand. He decided their future beforehand. He decided their fate, if you will, beforehand. Now, there's many questions that come up when we talk about this. Why is it that God would choose some and not others? Because that's what it's implying. If those whom God loved intimately beforehand are a particular group, that's implying that he is actively bringing them to faith. He has set his love on them, and for others, he has not. Now, a couple of things. One, this is something you're very familiar with. We say... This isn't fair. It's not fair that God would choose some and not others. But grace has nothing to do with fairness. Nothing to do with fairness. Fair, as I'm sure you've heard Dr. Sproul say, fair is everybody gets God's judgment because everybody is a sinner. And that's fair. Fair. And so we don't want fairness. We want grace and we want mercy. So grace, as we have come to understand it, is a simple meaning of unmerited favor. It's receiving something that you do not deserve. So if fairness is that everybody goes to hell because everybody is a sinner and everybody deserves God's wrath, grace is something much, much different. Grace is God saying, I'm going to choose you unto salvation. I'm going to set my love upon you for no other reason but for my purpose and pleasure. Not that you have earned it. And you know, that's exactly the way in which the Lord had set his love on Israel in the Old Testament. I'm going to set my love on you on behalf of your fathers. And I'm going to choose you out of all the nations of the earth to be mine. And so when you're looking at the doctrine of election, it is absolutely consistent with how we see it also in the Old Testament. So if God is bringing his people to faith and he actively brings them to faith, and we'll look at that a little bit more, does that mean that God is actively hardening other people in which they cannot come to faith? Because that's a charge that is against the reformed tradition of of the doctrine of election. People are coming into the kingdom when they don't want to, but God chose them, so they got to come. Then you got people who want to come into the kingdom, but God didn't choose them, and so they can't come. Those people do not exist. You will never find an instance in which you will have a person that would like to be saved, but I can't because God said I can't. He didn't choose me. And you'll never find somebody who is saved saying, I really didn't want to be in the family of God, but since God chose me, I had to come. Those people don't exist. God actively, and this is what we need to understand about election and reprobation. God actively brings his people to faith. Everyone is in darkness. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sin. And God makes them alive with Christ. That's why he says, by grace you have been saved. And he passes over the rest, leaving them to their just judgment. He doesn't actively harden them. They're already sinners. They're already in rebellion against him. They are already in darkness. He simply passes over them and leaves them to their just judgment. And so it's not a scenario in which God actively brings his people to faith and actively hardens the rest. That's not what we find. Another question that inevitably comes up is, well, if this is true... And God has chosen who's going to be saved. Why do we evangelize? Why do we, why do we even spread the gospel? I want you to hold your place here. And I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 18, we'll begin in verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers." And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now listen to this. And the Lord said to Paul in the the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, we know Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed. Other Jews are believing as well. Paul is being almost run out of of the synagogue because they're blaspheming and they're resisting. And yet he has this vision from the Lord saying, Don't be afraid any longer, but go on. Keep preaching, for I have many people in this city. And you start scratching your head going, What does that mean? He has many people in this city. But if we understand what the scripture tells us, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And that it is indeed the gospel that God uses to bring his elect to faith. As you have Paul preaching to Lydia, and what does the scripture say? The Lord opened her heart for her to receive the things that Paul was saying. The gospel is the instrument by which God brings his elect to faith. And so it was necessary for Paul to keep on preaching in Corinth because many people in the city needed to hear the gospel. We evangelize, one, because God tells us to. We don't need to try to reason ourselves out of it, whether or not we should or we shouldn't, because we're relying on God's sovereignty. God said, go. So that's what we do. And we don't know who the elect are. And so we give the gospel freely to every person because we don't know who they are. And even people that we meet and people that we have in our families that have, that have rejected the gospel, we don't throw our hands up and say, well, they must not be of the elect because I gave them the gospel and they didn't receive it. How many times did you hear the gospel before, it finally, uh, before the Lord finally opened your heart to receive it? God has his appointed time. And so as long as our family members and friends and others have breath in their lungs, there's still hope. Because we don't know who they are. As I'm sure you've heard Spurgeon say, if you can pull up someone's shirt tail and show me an E stamped on their back and I know the elect, I'll limit my work to them. But there is no such stamp, no such mark. So we evangelize because God tells us to, and we don't know who the elect are. You need to understand as well, even if you don't, even if you do not hold to the reformed doctrine of election, you're still not getting rid of the dilemma. Because even if you take the other view and we say, okay, God knows all things. And so God knew who would believe and who wouldn't. Okay. As Richard had asked me once, are you saying Before God ever made the first speck of dirt, he knew who would believe. The answer to that is yes, because we know God's all-knowing. So before God made the first speck of dirt, he knew all who would not believe. And we have to come to that conclusion and say, that's correct. But he made both anyway. And so you still have to acknowledge that God is creating people knowing that they will endure his judgment and have no hope. You have to admit that. Unless you're an open theist, you have to admit that. And by the way, open theism is the logical conclusion of the Armenian view. Open theism says... Well, God doesn't really know. He's learning as he goes. So he can't determine to know who's going to believe and who isn't. Or you have other Armenian theologians who would say that yes, God knew beforehand, but it's still possible for someone to change their destiny if they decide to believe. That is an attack on God's omniscience, on his power, on his sovereignty. So if God has chosen, and he has done so not based on any conditions, because if you put conditions on it, grace is out the window. You cannot have conditional salvation and say you're saved by grace. It has to be, you might as well just say it, my salvation was conditional. I didn't get grace. I made a criteria whereby God elected me to faith. So if we're saved by grace, because we know that we're saved by grace, and God has chosen to bestow that, that salvation on us, not because of any of our own doing, and he, he has chosen to grant us mercy based on his own purpose and pleasure, what, is that? what does that have to do then with Christ's atonement? Because all of this is connected. So the question comes, for whom did Christ die? Well, what does the scripture say? Jesus himself says, I come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life A ransom for many. And then he says in Matthew chapter 26, when he's passing around the cup, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And then Jesus says in John 10, I lay my life down for my sheep. And then Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ died for the church. So are you saying that Christ did not die for everyone? Well, let me ask you this. If Jesus died for everyone in general, as Dr. MacArthur points out, if Jesus died for everyone in general, that means he died for no one in particular. And that means that his death is not an actual death for sin, but only a potential death if you, the sinner, activate that salvation and choose him. Well, when you look at the state of man... In the state of the sinner, what is it that we find? From the very beginning of God's word, what do we find concerning the spiritual nature of man left to himself? Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 6 and 8 rather, that the thought in the intent of man's heart is only evil continuously. His thoughts are evil from his youth. Then you go to Jeremiah seventeen nine that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness. You're going to Ephesians chapter 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin and are by nature children of wrath even as the rest. We've already been over Romans 3. There are none righteous, not even one. There are none who seek after God. All have turned aside. So if you have someone that is in that spiritual condition, what all of a sudden makes them say, I want to choose the ultimate good, which is contrary to my very nature? It's because God has done a work within them. Now, I will say this just so that you understand this as well. The non-reformed camp will also talk about this prevenient grace doctrine. Provenient grace is grace that comes beforehand. So in their view, they acknowledge that man is dead in his trespasses and sin, but he's not totally dead. But that God bestows this particular grace on them, bringing them to a place of neutrality that they can accept or reject the gospel. But the problems that we have with that is that the scripture makes it very clear that left to yourself, unless you're born again, You will never choose him. When you're looking at passages that that we've already been over, of course, when you're looking at John chapter 3, and Jesus says, Before you can enter the kingdom of God, before you can see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You enter the kingdom and you see the kingdom with eyes of faith, you enter it by faith. But Jesus says, There's a prerequisite you must be born again, you must be born from above. So Jesus is putting the new birth before you actually exercise faith. He does the same thing in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John places the new birth before you believe. And he does so again. And I love this passage. It's in First John, John Chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Now here's the really interesting part. At least it's interesting to me. Maybe I'm just a nerd, I don't know. But it's interesting to me. Whoever believes, this is in the present tense. It's an active participle, serving as a, uh, as a verb. Whoever believes in the present tense that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That is in the perfect tense in the Greek. Meaning it's an action that has taken place at a certain time, and the effects of it continue there out. So the perfect comes before the present. And so he's making the point to say here, using those Greek constructions and and the tenses, that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, is saying, you believe because you're born of God. And that's the way the Greek construction goes. You believed because you were first born of him. You didn't have faith left to yourself. And when we go to that wonderful passage that we quote so often, for by grace through faith you have been saved, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we come back to that word. For by grace through faith are you saved, and that not of yourselves. And you have to ask the question, that what? That what, not of yourselves? Well, the closest antecedent to that is faith. Faith. For by grace through faith you have been saved, and that faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Or you can put salvation in there. If you want to look at the, for by grace through faith, are you saved, and you want to say salvation, well, that's even better. And that salvation, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We don't have faith. We don't have the ability to believe because we are dead, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil until the sovereign work of the spirit of God for those that were elected before the foundation of the world according to the purpose and pleasure of the father that the spirit causes us to be born again gives us a new nature and gives us desires to choose Christ we want to now whereas before we didn't and so we do we believe upon him with the faith that was gifted to us. You know, When you look back at the atonement, by the way, just so that we can see the continuity from the old into the new, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make atonement one time a year, who is he making atonement for? Only Israel. You can look at every other nation that were pagan, serving false gods. God revealed himself to this people and this people only. And he gave them his law. He gave them the ceremonial law. He gave them all the statutes, etc., etc. And it was only the sins of the covenant people of God that were being atoned for whenever the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And yet... We don't really have a problem with that. I don't know why we don't have a problem with that if we have a problem with the doctrine of election. Because that's exactly what is being said as well when it comes to Christ. Christ is dying for the people of God. And he's dying a real death for sin. Not a potential death. I mean, think of this, again, as Dr. MacArthur points out, if you say that Jesus paid the penalty in full for every single individual that will ever be born, that has ever lived, and yet they still reject and they die and they go to hell, and they're going to endure the very punishment that Christ supposedly paid for. And that's double jeopardy. And that's not at all what the scripture teaches. And we we can have that debate as to whether or not, well, they didn't receive the gift. It was still purchased for them. And yet they're going to endure the very wrath of God that Christ supposedly paid for. That doesn't make any sense. But if we understand that the death of Christ was for those whom the Father had given to him. When you read John 17, those are the very words that he says. Those whom you have given to me, they were yours and they're mine. You have all that the Father gives to me will come. And the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. All that the Father gives me will come. And those that the Father had given to the Son were those whose names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. When you go back and you read Revelation chapter 13, that's what it says. And those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world took the mark, etc., etc. It's not as if you have this scenario in which, as history moves on, that somebody believes and then their name is recorded. Then you have this one who believes and name, the name is recorded. You have the implication there, especially in Revelation 13, your names were written before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He didn't say he chose Christ before the foundation of the world, as some would like to say. Paul says, us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us. Verse 5. That love in which he predestined us unto salvation is the love that Paul is speaking of here for those whom he foreknew, those whom he loved intimately beforehand, he predestined. Dear friends, you are in Christ by his doing. And that's exactly what the apostle says in 1 Corinthians. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Your salvation is a gift to you, now, based on anything that you did to deserve it, not because you were smarter than somebody else, you heard a well reasoned argument and you said to yourself, Well, that makes sense, and so I'm going to place my faith in Christ. You believe because He caused you to be born again, and He gave you a new heart. And He says in Ezekiel 36, you remember that passage. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. These are things that God is doing. And that's the parallel verse, by the way, of John 3, verses 3 through 5. I know some of these things can be difficult because it doesn't seem, again, it doesn't seem right to us at times, it doesn't seem fair. But again, fairness has nothing to do with grace. And that's why grace is what it is. That's why we we thank God so much when we say, thank you that you saved me in spite of myself. Thank you that you extended grace to me, even though I know even now I don't deserve it. Why did you give such grace? Because we understand what grace is. We don't say to the Lord, thank you for sending that person to me with that well-reasoned argument. And thank you for giving me the intellect that I have that it just made sense. We say, thank you, Lord. Because by your doing, I've been made, made whole in Christ. I've been granted this salvation. This is the, the love of God an eternity past that he has for his people. And if we ask the question, well, why did God choose me? I don't know. I wonder that too. Because I know who I am. And I know I don't deserve God's love. Just as you know, you don't deserve it either. So why does God choose some and not others? Why did he choose these particular ones over these I have no idea. And I wouldn't venture to try to give a reason. Only within the mind of God. Would any of that make sense? (laughs) So he takes us back to eternity past to show us God's great love that he has for his people. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for this purpose. To become conformed to the image of His Son. This is the goodness. This is the good that that Paul was speaking of back in verse 28. We know that all things work together for good. Well, the good here is elaborated on. It's to be conformed to the image of Christ. To be conformed to the image of the Son. That means to be made in like form. To be conformed to His moral image. be made to be molded morally to the character of Christ. And this, this occurs through your good times. This occurs through your difficult times, as Paul has already told us about difficult times and suffering and pain. But all of this is to, to help us to grow into Christ and to shape us and to mold us to be more like Christ. Through your sufferings, we are made more like our Lord. The Apostle Again, says in Philippians that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. It is through those times in which you do the very same thing, at least what is the intent is. When we have times of difficulty, what is it that you do? We've talked about that in the past couple of weeks. When Christ was being reviled, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. When you're going through your times of suffering and pain and trials, what is it you do? You entrust yourself to him who judges righteously. And as you entrust yourself to him, you have a confidence that is building up in you towards your Lord, a greater love for him, a greater adoration, a greater desire to walk in obedience to him as you see what goodness is being given to you even in the time of of your greatest pains. It is pain that ends up, interestingly, shaping us and strengthening our faith, giving us an even greater desire to walk in obedience. We are being conformed to the image of Christ, he says. Conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The Greek word prototokos, which is firstborn, means firstborn head of a spiritual family. Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of us all, and he is our example. And we are being conformed to his image, being made in his likeness. You know, when we talk about salvation and we talk about how the moral image of God in the very beginning because of the fall was marred, and through the salvation that God has provided and that God has granted to us, that we're being recreated in righteousness and holiness of the truth, Which is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, that the moral image of God is being restored. It will be fully completed when we get to heaven, never in this life. But that's the process that is occurring here. Your sanctification, the moral image of God being placed back, having been lost before. I want you to think of this. When we talk about becoming more like Christ, what does that mean? Does it mean we just love? Love, love, love? Do we walk in obedience? Obedience to what? We talk about Christ and we say, Christ actively fulfilled the law of God to its perfection. Because that's what God demands. Absolute perfection. And the law is the moral image of is the expression of of God's holiness, rather. And God demands absolute perfection to his law, and we can't do it. But then we talk about it and we say, but Christ did it for us. Christ perfectly obeyed the Father in obeying the law of God. And then we come to this and we say, well, what does it mean then that we're being conformed to the image of Christ? What does that look like? it looks like that we take the law of God and we begin to obey because the law of God is the standard and we know that it's good and we know that it's right. And so we don't have to guess. What is it that I'm to do today? Well, I already know because the law of God says this is how we ought to live. And this is where Luther, I love this, from uh, Martin Luther, he said, Speaking of the law, that God uses it as a rod to beat me to Christ, but then he gives it to me as a stick to walk me through life. The law of God is important because the law of God reveals to us what is pleasing in the sight of God. So we need to know the law. We know it's right. You think of the Ten Commandments... We think of the expressions of the Ten Commandments in the various aspects of the different scenarios that are given to us within the Scripture. That's the basis. That's, you could say, a summary of the moral law. That's where we start and that's where we move. So we're being conformed to the image of Christ as our spiritual head. And that's the good that comes out of it. Even though at the time it's not fun, suffering is never fun, trials are never fun, but the outcome of it. The apostle says back in chapter 5, verse 3, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. How is it that we rejoice in our sufferings? Well, we don't. But we can rejoice in the outcome of the suffering, in the trial. Because it's through the trial, it's through the pain that God is, is bringing you along, giving you exactly what you need in the moments that you needed to bring you along and to strengthen your character and to strengthen your faith so that when you get out of the trial or whatever it is, you look back and you see how God has grown you through it. And so the outcome of it is something to be joyful of. God has used this great pain in my life when I couldn't see anything else as to what purpose that this ever served and yet, God has brought me through and God has changed me. In those things we can be joyful. And so there is good that is being brought about in your trial and in your suffering and in your pain and your distress and in your discouragement, etc. etc. God is strengthening you. And the good that is being brought about is He is He is molding you to be more like His Son. That's why the apostle Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which will come upon you for the testing of your faith as if some strange thing happened to you. You know it's coming. You know it's going to come. For the testing of your faith. God is good. And he is performing good things in your life even in the midst of your trials and your pain. Do you believe that? Sometimes it's hard to see, but do you believe that? I don't understand, but I trust you. Is that what you say? God has shown himself to be trustworthy, and he has shown his great love for you, not only in in Christ dying for you while you were ungodly, but the apostles taking this back all the way to eternity past. He loved you even then. And he showed his love for you in Christ dying for you. He showed his love for you in bringing you to faith at his appointed time, making you part of his family. So you see his great love, you see his goodness, and you see his faithfulness. In verse 30, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We had talked about before about the effectual calling of God. It is a calling that God gives inwardly. It is a sovereign calling. It is an irresistible calling. It is a divine summons from the great king. When he calls, we answer. Why do we answer? Because the Holy Spirit of God has regenerated the heart, giving us a new nature, and now we call upon him in faith. We cry out to him. Think of how many times throughout the New Testament that you find that phrase, the called of God. You are the called of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. The scripture says, it was, for this, it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He called them through Paul's call of the gospel message. The gospel went out to all, whoever the audience was that Paul was speaking to, but God was the one who called. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you, Out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you. When he called you, he's regenerated you. And when he regenerated you, he's granted you faith. And when he granted you faith, you exercise that faith in believing upon Christ. And as a result of being, exercising that faith rather, as a result of that, you've been justified in the sight of God. For these whom he called, he also justified. And in, in it's interesting how it reads within the Greek text. It's, it's saying basically that these whom he called and these only is how it emphasizes there. And these whom he called, these only. These are the ones he justified. If he calls everyone in general, then everybody should be justified. But that's not what he's referring to, is it? The ones whom he called, he justified because he granted them faith to believe upon Christ. And we know that justification is a result of believing by faith. That's the emphasis there. Actually, back in Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, Paul has elaborated on that so many places thus far within the book of Romans. You are justified because of believing. The faith that was granted to you. And in the time in which you believed upon the Lord Jesus, his righteousness is imputed to you so that when God looks at you, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of his son and he declares you not guilty. Justification is something that is declared about you, not something that is done to you. You are declared to be not guilty in the sight of God on account of someone else's righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. Christ. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. That's what Isaiah says. Your sins were imputed to him. And he paid the full penalty. He died a real death for sin. He didn't die for sin generally. He died for the sins of his people. All your sins, past, present, and future were imputed to him and he paid the penalty. He satisfies the justice of God in your place and then he credits his righteousness to you. What a God we serve. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The culmination of our salvation is when we are glorified in Christ. You know, we we talk about now That when we die now, our body goes to the dust of the earth, our spirit goes home to be with the Lord. We're in a state of perfection, right? No more sin, yes. But your salvation isn't done yet. There's something even greater to look forward to. And that is when you are glorified in Christ. The day that creation is longing for, that we are groaning for, is to be glorified in our Lord. What does it mean to be glorified in our Lord? I don't know. We'll find out. We don't know what we're going to be like, but as John says, we're going to be like him in a physical glorified body because Christ rose from the dead in a physical glorified body. John says we're going to be like him. I don't know what that's going to be like, but it's something so magnificent that Paul says creation is groaning and waiting for that day. we will be fully made whole in Christ. And that's why you have that sequence of events when you're looking at the resurrection passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. That The dead in Christ rise first. Well, why do the dead in Christ rise first? Because they've gone home to be with the Lord. They're in a state of perfection, but they're, the culmination of their salvation isn't done yet. They rise first, reunited in their physical glorified body, we who are alive and remain at the time of His coming will be called up, changed in the moment, twinkling of an eye, as He says in 1 Corinthians. That's the culmination. That's the day we look forward to. That's the great hope. That's the blessed hope that we have in Christ to look forward to. And you notice this, as, as I had mentioned earlier. These are all in the past tense. Called and justified and glorified. And glorification has happened for no one yet. With her in the past tense. William Hendrickson says, This past tense indicates the certainty that a future event will take place, and perhaps in the present, connecting also to the fact that the glory promised for the future has already begun to be realized, and how the Lord has sanctified you thus far. It indicates the certainty. Of this future event. That it's in the past tense. That's the amazing thing. It's a done deal. It's certain to happen. There is no going back. When God has promised you eternal life. And God has made this promise to you. He has demonstrated his faithfulness to you already in your life. He's demonstrated his faithfulness to his people all through the scripture that we can go back and we can see the testimony of so many of how God brought them through, how God was always faithful. He fulfilled all the promises that he's ever said he would do. There was not one that was missing because he changed his mind. God is faithful. And when he says to you, whoever beholds the sun and believes in him, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day, that's a certain promise. That's a sure promise. And he will perform what he says. And all of this is connected together, of course. Again, this isn't just a passage to try to have some fuel for debate. This is a passage to look at and say, this is so amazing. That God is so gracious to us. That God is so wonderful to us. Even though we know who we really are. He loved us even before we ever existed. Well, that's what the word means. At the right time when Christ died for the ungodly, he was dying for those that the Father had given to him. That's what the scripture says. And then when the appointed time came that... We believed upon Christ. It was because the Spirit did a work in me first? Yes. He secured it from the very beginning. At the appointed time, He brought it to pass, granting you salvation. And you think of all the things that God does, right? He doesn't just save us and then let us continue on and then... He kind of steers us this way or that. I mean, when you're looking at the, the verses prior in verses 26 and 27 that we already went over, that the Spirit helps in our weakness. That He's bringing us along. It's in His power that we're being brought along. It's in His power that we're, been cha- that we're being changed into the moral image of Christ. It's by His power that we continue to believe. We persevere. That's one of the things that we talk about within the Ordo Salutis, right? The order of salvation, You have those nine particular blessings that come to all believers. You have the effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, and perseverance, union with Christ, and glorification. We talk about perseverance, which is continuing to believe. Why do we continue to believe? Because God has preserved us in his hand and not one of us will be lost. And then he intercedes for us to pray on our behalf when we don't even know what to pray. He perfects our worship before God. All of these things is what God is doing for us. So many so many other things I'm sure that we can't even fathom of what the spirit of God is doing for the people of God. And this is the great love of God that he has for his people to do these things. And to bring us along. And to love you as he has. To help you in your times of weakness, to pray on your behalf. To shower you with His great grace in your time of need because of His great love. Do we consider that? Do we reflect on that? This is one of those passages that you just look and you say at the very end, Praise be to you. He has secured your salvation, dear friends. And you will never be lost. So let us rejoice in that today. As we ready our hearts to take of the Lord's Supper, let us be in remembrance of that, of what God has done on behalf of his people. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for your love that is put on display for us here. For your grace that is put on display. For your faithfulness and your goodness. Father, we acknowledge that not one of us here are deserving of any of that. This is all you're doing. All the credit goes to you. We can't claim any of it. That's why we, it is a joyful thing for us to say, salvation is of the Lord, not us. We ask the questions, why did you choose us? because we don't understand. If you were to ask probably each one of us if we were God, if we would have chosen us and we would say, no. Thank you that that you're not like us. Thank you that you only are God. Whereas these things confound us, we know that it's working its way it is, makes perfect sense in, in your mind. For you are God. Father, thank you for these great graces. Thank you for revealing these wonderful things to us in your word. That we can reflect upon, rejoice in, be so encouraged and comforted by. We know that all things work together for good. Because you've had our good in mind ever since eternity passed. And you have our good in mind when you bring us into the culmination of our salvation at the very end. Father, we love you because you first loved us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, amen.